0: Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at from Nor to Podcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. If I were to ask you what your most vivid memory is, I would most likely get a range of responses from the audience. Some people might relate their greatest achievement. Some may cherish their strongest emotional feeling. Or some, unfortunately, may be haunted by terrible trauma. In all likelihood, each one of us can probably remember all three of those experiences from our individual lives. Even if you can't remember them, the person you woke up as today has been indelibly affected by them. The greatest philosophical paradigms all have one area of study they share in common. The study of experience. Okay. So, we decided last week on the air that we were going to do experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you don't, this is one of the few topics I think where I didn't have any research. I didn't have to do any research to know that there was going to be a lot to cover oh, yeah. Yeah, on yeah. this one. Yeah. You know, just thinking back on all of the great philosophers, you know, what is. It's almost as if, if you ask what philosophy is about, really, experience is kind of at the heart of it in many ways. The debate arises when you're talking about what kind of experience. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, you know, the the million dollar question is, what is experience?
1: Okay. All right, this is one of those things we all know what we mean when we say it until we start probing into it. So, so experience is sometimes defined as the uh, roughly the building of observations and processes and going through things so that in your professional practice as one example you accrue things that you hadn't encountered hmm. So, it's a, it's a building of encounters and I'm uh, drawing out of those encounters, that collection of encounters, things that no one could have taught you just by abstractly mentioning mm. them. How's yeah. that
0: first start? Good, good. I like it. And, um, you know, I, I can sense that you're, you're being very careful about how you're describing it, like you always are, but... But I think with experience more than any other topic we've studied, the definition has important implications for the theories that explain it, right? I sent you earlier in the week a really great Stephen Hawking quote where, yes. <laughs> you know, he said, the history of the universe depends on the question that you ask, right? Experience is, is the same way, right? Um, depending on the philosophical paradigm that you're looking at and, and what it's saying about experience, or what it's saying experience is, has a a marked impact on how you think about it conceptually. It does, and
1: some people don't separate. I mean, I think all of us have moments when we don't do this, but the critical thing is to separate a few things. An actual experience, an encounter, with what you're building up that other people have told you, So that if you ever do have an encounter, you already know how you're going to respond. When that could put you in a, at a very in a very bad place, because uh, people tell you all kinds of things about uh, a category of human being, and so you think you've already experienced, and you've never met anyone like that. So you encounter them, but you don't because you've already got this cloud between you. And that person, just just as one example. And that's why I was being careful with this, I think, at the beginning, because we, well, we'll get to this, but experience is a phenomenological thing. It's also an ontological thing. It's also an epistemological thing. And and each of those layers are in there somewhere.
0: Yeah. um, You know, I think that the phenomenological aspect of it is very interesting because, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of closed to empirical studies in some ways, but I think it's something that many people have experienced. I think for me, you know, the greatest experience of it is um, during yoga or meditation, right? Because Mm -hmm. depending on my mindset and my, you know, the attention that I'm paying to what I'm doing and this sorts of things, my experience Of engaging in these practices can be wildly different, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm distracted or I'm in a hurry or something else is going on, then it's just going through the motions and and nothing really takes place. But on the other hand, if I am am calm and relaxed and and focused and paying attention and you're starting to follow the instructions, all of a sudden you have this almost epiphany like experience Mm. based around very simple concepts you know and that's such a hard thing to um, to talk about much less study or try to um, you know look at in a
1: systematic way it is because we're trying to we're trying to capture experience in words and as we always say words are slippery Uh, but the etymology is interesting in the the, uh, 1200s uh, the Latin experientia meant Trials leading to proofs. Hmm. That's where the word experiment comes from. So, uh, the knowledge you gain by repetition. And I know we're going to get to that <laughs> that, that too. Uh, and, and, and as you go back and back and back, um, some people call it, say that it's having, having done something and, and, and gotten really handy at it. Having become familiar with something through practice. <laughs> um, so it has an element of the experimental, which is part of the offshoot of the word. It has the element of an observation with as a direct encounter, if you can even have a direct encounter. And then people debate that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, th- I think that when I think of experience, I think of it. Um, the word experience right i i don't think of it in the same way the etymology describes it right i i think of an experience as being something novel that's what pops into my mind hmm. initially not something that is repetitive right if i'm having an experience i think of something that is new right i don't think of coming up to play my guitar for the 6000th time as as having an experience and yeah. I
1: should, right? Uh, and well, that, and, and if then you sometimes go with, I can. If but. you go with the Zen, if you go with the yoga if the, that you just said before, everything is new. Right. If you pay complete attention to it, because you will always find hmm. something fresh in it. Well, none of us does that all the time, except for maybe some really accomplished yogis. But, but I think that, that sense is there. Yeah. Uh, everything old is new again. Yeah, right and altruism. Yeah, and I think that that to me that's what having
0: an experience is. Right, is that that engagement with something in a new way, whether it's something for the first time or something for the millionth time, but it's being it's giving you something that is it didn't yeah, you have an experience before. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when was the the constitution of phenomenological experience first called into question? Who was who's the first? <laughs> do we have a record of when this? It's starting to be thought about, you know, because it seems it's such a natural
1: part of our, our existence. It is. It is. And, and we go right back to the, the big guns, right? <laughs> the old guys. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Aristotle says an experienced person is a person who has acquired, in translation, a coping skill, hmm. uh, an appropriate attitude. Or a, a, a balanced sense of the situation you find yourself in. Now, those are vague. Yeah, uh, I, I like the
0: second one. I like the uh, second uh, one. An appropriate attitude. Yeah, because you know, I, to me, that that gets at what, what we were just talking about, right? It doesn't matter if it's the first time or the the millionth time. It's appro- you know, approaching a
1: situation with the appropriate attitude. But Aristotle was talking about. He didn't use the term of phenomenology. He was talking about the, your, your encounter and your attitude in that encounter with something outside yourself. Hmm. And Plato says uh, that, that uh, any sense of experience fails to give us any guarantee <laughs> that uh, what we experience is true. <laughs> so he's yanking the rug out uh, uh, but but Aristotle came after Plato so <laughs> he was taking what his teachers said but nope
0: <laughs> yeah it's funny'm I'm, I'm listening to the auto book audiobook, audiobook um, on time right now which is by uh, Thomas Hertog who was developing Stephen Hawking's last theory of, of the universe uh-huh. when he died and um what's interesting is how often platonic idealism comes up in this discussion of of cutting edge quantum mechanical cosmology right the stuff that people asking the biggest question of humankind with the the most technology and the most theori- you know cutting edge theoretical knowledge are still talking about platonic idealism
1: right yes and I don't think Plato was entirely wrong in, in, in the idea that uh, we can't we can't utterly rely on our sense experience I mean this is a debate that went from them all the way down it's, it's still with us as you just said but we can't entirely rely on our sense experience uh, because our sense experience is constantly changing hmm. And that which we're observing is changing it may not be um, completely, you know we go to Letchworth Park the, the, near where we live and and we look at the gorge and this marvelous hundreds of feet deep and the river sneaking around through it and it's, um, it's sublime it's awesome for real but <laughs> but even but sometimes when you watch you hear a, a clattering and, and you realize, that there's a piece of ground and maybe even a tree or two sliding down the face of a shale cliff and landing. At the cliff. Things are changing right in front of us. Um, I was thinking about this our, our talk today earlier this week with something as well. You know, I love to do art and I and I and one of the kinds of things I engage in is photographic experimentation and play and art making and in a hallway in my house we have curtains and the windows facing the west we have them opened up for the air in the summertime and, and the curtains flutter and the sun coming through makes all kinds of patterns on the floor But those patterns are shifting constantly what i see for a second i try to capture with the camera oh that's gone but something else has happened it, it's 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 um, it's protoplasm. It's living change. Light is changing constantly in front of us. So I think of that, and I think of Plato. And yeah. Or, or you say that you're, you're sitting with somebody outside, and you say, "Did you did you hear that? What? Well, th- th- this week I was wor- I'm working on a treehouse for my granddaughter, and 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 the breeze is blowing and it's fine and, and the things were going smoothly before I whacked my thumb But <laughs> and, and I hear this Rawr, Rawr. there were two ravens upon a, a power pole <laughs> with the, the lines of course I was anthropomorphizing and saying well they're, they're commenting on my work <laughs> you know <laughs> and, I, and, and, and then I, I think well did I really hear those ravens and I look up and they're gone. And in place of them is a red-tailed hawk. But I know I saw them. I know I heard them. Can I ever prove it? No. Can, can, has that experience changed in the space of less than two minutes? Same power pole. Well, it too is eroding. So maybe it's not the same. So I think that's what Plato was getting at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and again, the, the theory that that Hawking and Herzog are working on is um, it, it has a lot to do with that, where essentially, you know, they're looking at, What their their theory said was that, you know, we were looking at the physics of the universe all wrong. Basically, that we were examining it as if we were outside of the universe, as if we were observers of the universe that were not involved in it. They call that a God's eye view. they claim to be trying to develop a worm's eye view of Mm -hmm, the universe. mm -hmm. It was people who were subjected into it. And um, the conclusions that they came through through the, you know, the physics and the mathematics of it was that, um, you know, the observer effect, this kind of weird, um, you know, phenomenon in, in quantum mechanics where reality seems to change based on if we are there to see it or not, right? They go, that seems like something that is so strange, but really um, what they, they were finding is that anything can be an observer, right so light photons can be observers electrons can be observers these sorts of things so it it takes the, that that human centric part out of it but you know the consequences of it are that the origin of the universe um isn't really something that is open that is concrete or open to observation it's more a fluid thing and as we observe it we bring it into reality but it really, it's in flux up until it's that It's in flux. Point. And, and,
1: and even then, it's still in flux because we think we've nailed the origin. Nope. It was l- even older than when we think. Uh, nope. And this is really strange because these galaxies that are close to millions of years at the beginning aren't supposed to be there. But there they are. And
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: the flux continued. So yeah, I said before we
0: started uh, you know that uh I, w- I was going to ask some some hard questions and so before we get into them um what is is there any other historical philosophical thought and experience that you want to cover was there, has there been a progression throughout time that brings us up to the present or have we've been mostly struggling with Aristotelian and Platonic <laughs> ideals throughout time I think
1: that um I mean there are many of the familiar's talk about it um in his first critique of reason Kant uh, he he says experience is possibility. I think that very interestingly uh, prefaces what you were just describing, hmm. a Heisenbergian kind yeah. of... Uh, 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 he says that the human understanding can't conceive of an absolute possibility, just a relative one. and And so... The idea of a possible experience, uh, a whole experience of the whole universe is not possible. A whole experience of something vast, even, is not possible. And I think he's right about that. And and, and I think that derives both from Aristotelian and and Platonic uh, material. So, I think it's rooted in that. But, again... Uh, I, I defy any of us, whether we are in the Antarctic, <laughs> which I haven't been in, but you know, when, one tries to imagine reading what it's like to be at McMurdo Bays, or or you're in a desert, or you're in a grand uh, forest, but you sit down, or you stop for a moment, can you possibly take in everything that's around you and say that you really have noticed everything that's there? Can you, can you concatenate all of it? And I don't think so. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Um, which
0: raises the question: Can there be a priori experience?
1: Hmm. Tell people again what you mean by a priori. So, as I know, I've defined this a yes, number of times. Yes. Uh, your so, turn. <laughs> so, a posteriori,
0: right, is experience through direct contact. A priori experience is experience. Um, sort of through the medium of thought or abstraction so the question is can there be a prior experience or can we only experience the medium through which the knowledge is gained you're the arctic right? right so can i only experience the arctic a posteriori or does my imagination of what the Arctic is like, combined with research that I've read and, and stories that I've been told and these sorts of things,
1: does that qualify as an experience? Well, it qualifies as an imagined experience, as, a, as an abstracted experience, but it doesn't qualify as experience itself, no. First-hand experience is not the same as third-hand. Or as a experience. So, I think that, I think an important part of the question is, so the,
0: the a priori there yeah. Is not, is obviously not experience of the Arctic. Right. But is it an experience at all? Hmm. Right. To, to merely think about the Arctic and,
1: and try, and try, just trying to imagine it. Is that an experience? Yeah. I, I would argue it is because you're having a, a, a very complex process going on where your eye is encountering blots, blots on, or pixels, blots is on a page or pixels on a screen. You're, we, we are, interpreting them pulling them in then starting to categorize them and cross-reference them with the things that we know and so we're having an experience of a text we're having an experience of experiencing what somebody else has said yeah
0: i think and i think that neuroscience backs us up here because there's been a lot of research that has looked at people under fmri imaging um and, you know, they found that, you know, through through that and through looking at mirror neurons and things that without doing anything, observing somebody doing something or reading or watching, um, it'll excite a lot of the same parts of the brain that are associated with actually experiencing the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, an interesting study that I saw this week um, was regarding uh, reading comprehension. And so the way that they did it was, you know, at a museum, they had people reading placards, you know, and then they were testing their knowledge afterwards. And what they found was the people who retained the most information were the people that they instructed before reading the placards to say, all right, you know, when you're looking at this piece of art, pretend that you're an art thief and pretend that you're doing research on the piece before you take it. Those are the ones with the best reading comprehension, right? So. It's this imagined experience of putting yourself into a specific situation, a specific profession. It's an intention, then, right? Right. It's giving an it's giving an intention or an imagined context to the knowledge that you're about to
1: experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That and that's you know it's in, because that that is it's an interesting new way of framing it. But the, when I was being trained in teaching. Uh, the, this came up not in those terms, but it's who reads better, somebody who has a purpose for reading or somebody who's just sitting and reading. And, and generally, even then, <laughs> in the 20th century, the, the, the indicators were that if you give somebody a purpose for reading, but it needs to be purposive beyond getting a grade, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, not, not something low level like that. So so why why am I reading this?
0: Yeah, and this this comes back to what we were talking about early in the episode. You know, this how my conception of an experience is something that is novel, regardless of whether it's something new or something that has is familiar. But it had there has to be some novelty in it in order for for me personally to think of it as it being a capital E experience, right? Um, and that's part of when I approach music, part of the way that I, I approach songwriting, right? Is that, you know, some, some days I come up here and I noodle around on guitar and there's no purpose to it. Right. And what happens is when I do that, that kind of falls into, I think what most people consider practice, right? I run through chords, I run through scales. You know, occasionally I, I come across something that's cool and new and I take a video so I remember what I was doing with my finger position and what it sounded like and I have it for later if I want to make a song out of it. But for the most part, it's this sort of rote practice that keeps the muscle memory there. Mm-hmm. But when I go to write a song, um, the, the purposeful intent is very similar to the, the study that I just relayed. I sit down and I go, since I do all the instruments myself... Mm-hmm. Um, part of what i have to do is i have to go all right i'm going to pretend that i'm a bass player in a world famous rock band right what would i do in this song right that would stand out and you and that puts you in a different frame of mind than just being a guy in his home studio right because having the the prestige right of being a world famous bass player that gives you license to do things that normal people can right <laughs> You know, what? I'm going to put a phaser on the bass because <laughs> I'm famous and I can do that. Nobody can tell me how to play bass. Well, the thing is, even as a normal guy in your bedroom, nobody can tell you how to play bass, but through yeah. rote practice, you just sort of establish that that's something that you can't do, right? And so if you approach each instrument that way um, and, and you try to put your yourself in the, the distinct mindset of a drummer, of a bass player, of a singer, and what those individual pieces will do... Um, you know, what I've found for me is that when I listen to my work, which is solo work against other musicians' solo work, I think the mind tends to sound more like a band made up of different people rather than just one person doing something, hmm. right. Um, and that's a completely subjective view that could be could be off the mark, but but that's what I'm going for, right? I want it to sound like a song that was put together by people who were were thinking about their their individual parts and how they work together rather than just one person trying to put up something
1: but that's what you want the audience to experience yeah yeah an individual who's a band right, right. okay so you're bringing up all sorts of things device so here we go down the path and there are those questions over there <laughs> 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 we're circling around them all right so so Socrates uh, as far as we know, in Plato, believed in pre-existing knowledge. On Plato's forms, you know, we were born into the world, we we had all these experiences, we lost them, we have to try to recover them. It's it's, very, it's much more complicated than that, but that's it, in a sense. Now, they didn't know anything about genetics. Hmm. or uh, 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 But I think about that sometimes, and I think, well, pre-existing knowledge, that's not the same as how you're your, base sequences work you're coding but there are seemingly pre-existing not free will uh, themes skills or predispositions towards skills or that that somehow are within us mm. and and so I don't just throw them all out, but I don't. But I, but I just wildly reinterpret it. Well, okay, they would had no idea about genetics, but now that we know about genetics, maybe there's something preexisting that we that we acknowledge. But still, I mean, the, the, the idea that generally we can't be absolutely sure um, uh, of of what an experience we've had is hmm. we interpret it as soon as we've had it. We we might be uh, skeptical. We might be uncertain. And we're probably going to get more from the experience by being that way. I think that's what what uh, Kant was getting at. I think that's what Descartes was saying. We, we can't necessarily believe the interpretation, believe what our senses are giving us. And, and the old saw of, of, of don't believe your eyes, don't always believe your eyes. Well, don't always believe your ears either. Coming here today, I had the, the most mundane of experiences. When I, I came up the hillside before I turned onto Water uh, Street, uh, my ear popped. <laughs> you know, as ears do when you change a just a, a, a bit of altitude, so to speak, and and suddenly I heard different things in my left ear than I'd been hearing earlier in the morning. It was my ears taking in that that had altered. So, maybe I, I heard something that I wouldn't have heard before that was still there because, yes, there's a sound in the forest when a tree crashes, even if we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I think that they, they are right about this idea that it, uh, uh, our perceptions, I think what they're getting at is that our perceptions can limit us mm. if we are too absolutely certain about our perceptions. And thus, experience, experiment, the scientific attitude has something going for it.
0: Yeah, and that that was an interesting um, point. That again, in the Hawking or the Hertog book about Hawking that they brought up is that you know the flaw in in looking at the universe um, in previous cosmological theories is that they were thinking about it as an experiment. But the problem is, as an experiment. The the experimenter has to be an objective observer outside of the experiment. Well, we're all inside of the universe; we are all part
1: of the experiment, so we have to take that into account. But there are two things: sens- sensation, senses, mm-hmm. sensual experience, and reflective and, experience. And this is, I think, what Hertog is. I got to read this, but I think yeah. this is what 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 Hertog is partly. I'm I'm gathering is talking about well any side that we know that hawking and uh, and all the rest who among us is not really we, we all reflect mm-hmm. maybe to varying degrees and not about the same things but that you have an experience you encounter something at some point you sit back and say what was that mm-hmm. and you start sifting through it was it ravens was it a red-tailed hawk was it there was it both um and and that reflective um experience is uh, sifting shifting and altering the sensual experience yeah which
0: brings me to the next question which is is experience an objective or
1: subjective phenomenon both but (laughs) but not i think in equal degrees uh If I walk to a promontory and I, I I'm on the overlook, which is a marvelous word for what we're talking about—an overlook—and right? mm-hmm. I'm I'm in the fall, uh, let's say in the autumn in in this part of the world that I'm looking at colors of trees, and I'm taking them in, and I'm wanting to paint them, and 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 all i am perceiving through my senses color i'm taking in the temperature of the air through my fingers and all all those kinds of things and that's um i think that can be argued that that's objective in the sense that there is a a a physical filtering going on I wouldn't say it's absolute because your experience and my experience are going to be two different things. So, but 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 the physical, the apparatus that we take the world in, however we do, I think that's um, that's objective in the sense of the machine working. But yeah. um, but the subjective then just moves in and
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's I takes think over. You used an interesting term there, which is. Uh, filtering right Hmm. because uh, if you can't tell i've been listening to a lot of physics audiobooks recently (laughs) (laughs) you know the one thing that pops out that that just it blows my mind every time you hear it right is that everything is made of mostly empty space yes right You, you you look at atoms and there's nothing to them right and everything is built out of atoms and molecules so all these things are built up, and they're they're mostly empty space. And then you start thinking about that. You start looking at things in a new way, and you go, okay, well, this that tree is mostly empty space. And if I zoom out a little bit, I can see that, okay, there's, there's these individual cells that are interlocked. And if I zoom out a little bit more, I can see, okay, well, there's these tiny... You know, organic machines that are giving this tree a green color, or maybe those organic machines have died, and now there's a keratin underneath that's giving it an orange color. Um, and then these things are connected by these little membranes, and then those membranes break, and a leaf falls to the ground, and and you go out farther, and you go, well, there's limbs on this tree, and then you go out farther, and you go, oh, you, all you you keep going and going, and you say. My conception of a tree, my experience of a tree has radically changed from the beginning of this experience to the end of it, right? Yeah. Looking at the tree as a whole is a completely different thing than imagining the tree at a molecular level or looking at the tree through a microscope. I just bought for my my nephew um, this thing that I saw advertised called a, a, a miniscope. little handheld microscope that zooms things to 120 i haven't given it to him yet for his birthday but i I bought two i got one also (laughs) but but you know it's just an interesting way of being able to run around and not have to bring a microscope with you but be able to put your eye up to something and see it at a level that you don't get to experience on a regular basis and you Mm -hmm. see these cells and the ship of theseus pops out right is the cell the tree is the tree, the forest, is the forest, the ecosystem, you know, and you keep going out and out. And that's, that's the part where this idea of objective and subjective experience gets really blurred, right? Because, you know, this, it, it raises the question of what is objectivity? You know, we, we know these things about the world. And one of the things that we know about the world is that science is the best way to know it and that science is not facts. Science is a process. So, all of the things that we think of as being scientific facts or laws are subject to change in the future yeah. and be, and revisions. It's and a process of explanation. It's a process of description. Right. But you can still look at these things and you can still see plant cells. Um, and you can still have a subjective experience of a tree as a whole or a parts of it and you go well how much of this is the real experience right is it all of this complicated thought process that i've gone through in my head or is the experience merely the light photons hitting my eyes and then the electrical signals bouncing around in my brain right (sighs)
1: both <laughs> really I mean it's oh my gosh because that reflectivity that you're engaging in is helping you know trees better and differently than you would have otherwise and it's a marvelous gift for your nephew you're, I'm one of your tribe on that kind of <laughs> stuff but it, it, make, it makes me so appreciate I wish my, my first philosophy professor really launched me on all of this and I was clueless, <laughs> uh, and I still am. But I'm much more informed in my cluelessness than, than I used to be. Uh, I, I wish that he could hear this conversation because I remember, uh, to my to my shame, the, the first day when he he walked in and with utter glee in his face, he, he said, "Ladies and gentlemen," and he rapped on the table. What is the tableness of the table? <laughs> Now, that's a platonic question. Right. (laughs) Then he picks up a chair and drops it. What is the chairness of this chair? And I'm going, what? (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm sitting there saying, of course, because we experience solidity, even though at at the molecular level or the particulate level, the quantum level, no, the solidity doesn't exist. Hmm. So, it's the levels uh, at which one is able to perceive So there's, I would still, uh, I argue that there's an objectivity that is um, contextualized by whatever limitations each of our senses has in combination. But we have an objective sense of things from the view that we can have unaided by anything other than our own apparatus. Hmm. And, and as we accrue things by Well, even getting down on our knees and looking at something. I mean, I was on a walk earlier this week, and totally unnoticing until something. I was noticed. I became aware of something along the, the path near a lake, and and then a friend pointed out, "Oh, snails!" Oh, and 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 so I I stopped and I looked. They're moving. Well, of course they are. And then you get down on your hands and knees and you're watching. And here's this creature with these little antennas mm-hmm. just sliding along and pulling back in and sliding along. And you notice that the whorls of the shells are different values of color and different. But you're hiking along, blah, 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 mm-hmm. Those snails are still there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, objectively, I was not taking them in. But when I took them in, even with my own limited apparatus, I could get closer. But I can't see them at a molecular level, right. and And so that I guess I'm messing with the word objectivity, but yeah, I think that I think I know what you're getting at though, And I think that
0: that's that the objectivity relates to the sensory apparatuses that are connected to the brain. And so there's an objectivity. And I think that our human sub subjectivity can hide some of that, because like we talked about in last week's podcast, right? up to 95% of our cognitive processes are are automated. Mm -hmm. We're subconscious, we're unaware of them, right? So, you know, as a result, our brain, you know, in addition to our sensory apparatuses filtering out a huge swath of reality, on top of that, our brain itself is filtering out huge swaths of the sensory apparatuses in order to distill down what our subjective experience of the world is. So I think that the objective part is, is what we're perceiving. But then I think the subjective part is that further filtering with the additional application of prior knowledge and categorization, which adds a tonal shift to the information that's being relayed. And I think that that is the part where, you know, the subject, the subjective part is where we go, that's a chair, even though the table could be used as a chair and a chair could be used as a table Mm -hmm. if you wanted to, you know, Mm -hmm. or as any number of different things, right? There is no, you know, sorry, Plato, there is no objective (laughs) chairness, right? There, There is nothing that makes something a chair other than. Our, our prefrontal cortex taking all of the information that we have throughout our lives and then taking in the objective information of the sensory perception and then trying to reconcile the two
1: this is our need for um, I'm just going to say next week we may talk about order this is yeah. our, our, our need for the artificiality Of order, so much uh, disservice has been done in in previous centuries. As an example, to um, to overlaying anthropomorphic, um, culturally uh, privileged ideas about how nature works. So, so a misogyny, for instance, is built into Linnaeus's classification of of plants. And, and just as a beginning, you know, and I never realized that until I read and was taught and shown and how this all works. So even when we think we're being objective, we're not necessarily being true to how things are. As an artist, my teacher, um, she always says to me, and, and I have internalized it and it works draw what you See, not what you think you see, hmm. which doesn't allow, which doesn't disallow interpretation. Quite, quite the opposite. In drawing what you see, the pain in a face or the wonder in a face, the aliveness of the moment comes out. You don't see an eye; you see a sort of a, a, a spot. Hmm. You see a shadow. You see shadows. You see geometric uh, shadows and light. And if you render those, you're more likely to get an essence of the human being if you're drawing a portrait, for instance, than if you're saying, "Well, I know that the irises are there, so I'm going to put in all the lines because we have there No, 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 no. You don't know that because you you know it in your your knowledge, but you don't see it. So art. Uh, tends to take you to a very interesting a sublime combination of of the objective and the subjective because mm-hmm. by by rendering objectively what you see you are capturing something um unspeakably uh measurable yeah, no, I think that that's really well said so
0: now i'm i'm gonna shift. I'm going to go back to your snail, right? <laughs> I think I've mentioned it on the show before that um, scientists discovered the most simplistic uh, neuronal system in any animal in a snail, hmm. which was essentially I had two nerves. And it was <laughs> a binary system that says tells the snail when to eat and when to stop eating. Hmm. So that raised the question, is experience restricted to conscious beings? Going back to our tree, right? Our tree is alive. Our tree does not have a neuronal system. Does the tree experience things?
1: Oh, Such a lovely question. Because we know the snail, right? The snail with
0: its simplified neuronal system does have a subjective experience. It's vastly different to humans, right? Because it does not have a prefrontal cortex to reflect. It does not metacognate. It does not critically think. Its sensory perceptions are, are wildly different and simplified in some ways, and some animals are vastly more um, advanced than ours. All right, do but they, when we get to things that do
1: not have neuronal systems... Do they have experiences? Right. Yes, I think so. I think so because if you take the... If you take the definition of experience as an accruing of encounters, we know now, who knows what we'll know in 10 years, but we know now that in a complicated forest, we'll go to the trees, <laughs> that that messages about the environment and things that are happening to other trees and other growing uh, other plant life connected to the trees. There are there are messages, for lack of a better word, that are conveyed, and decisions, for lack of a better word, because it's out a consciousness that we get, because we don't know entirely what consciousness yet is, is yet either. But a, but a cer- certainly, experience of drought causes messages to go through the root system. The complicated root systems, which sort of remind one of a synapse and so on, but a nerve system that lets more water go to one thing than to another, Mm -hmm. that allows for sharing of water. Now, I can't call that anything other than, uh, uh, at the very least, an accrual of experiences that has led to um, a cause and effect.
0: Yeah, so we've discussed this on the show a, a couple times, and the science is is fascinating. They have this, uh, you know, mycelium, this this fungus that connects a forest underground, and um, what they've found is that the the fungus will, re- re- you know, take nutrients from one thing and pass them on to another, and that you know there's sort of behavioral aspects that play into it, right? A, a tree is more likely to share nutrients with its offspring Mm -hmm. than with other trees right a tree that is dying is more likely to jettison its nutrients into the forest than one that is thriving so these do appear to be behavioral experiential things and i think that it raises um a very important thing that i I think science loses sight of in some regard which i'm I'm discovering through my studies in psychology which Mm -hmm. is that Neurons, the electrical system of the brain is only half of the equation in cognition, right? The electrical impulse, and I think that the the bias towards that is based on our technology, right? Our fMRI and, and our other technologies are electrically based. And so we, we, we give electrical signals a preferential space when talking about the brain, talking about cognition. But really what happens in the brain is that you have you know, synapses and dendrites and chemical messengers are passed. And then the chemical messenger excites an electrical signal. And that electrical signal just stays within the, the individual neuron. And when it reaches the end of that neuron, it lets another chemical messenger go. The mycelia communicates through chemical messengers, right? So even if the electrical, and I'm not entirely certain if there is an electrical impulse. There may be. But even if there isn't, the chemical messenger system is just as important in the conception of cognition and therefore in the conception of
1: experience as the electrical system. Okay, yes, but I don't think, and, and I think you're getting at this, but, but to me, this is why it's important to, to disentangle experience in this because there's so many definitions of experience but experience doesn't have to be um, associated with consciousness Mm, right i think like you know when we're talking about the trees as as an example or we're talking about the 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 snails it's a a cruel of encounters a gathering of encounters leads to something else i mean there was there's uh, a breakthrough, a Google-ish breakthrough. <laughs> one of the, the parent company or one of the sub-companies that, that working with combining the idea of artificial intelligence and uh, so on with, with robots. And so, and there was an abandonment of that on the part of some of the companies around 2017 because it's getting nowhere. But apparently it's beginning to get somewhere. So it was in. It, I don't know if you saw it in the news this week, but there's this robotic arm, and uh, it's been. Uh, it, it was given, or gathered, all kinds of information, and there's a whole range of plastic figurines put in front of it, and it's it's asked to find the creature that is extinct. And the buzzes around, buzzes around, stops, lifts up a dinosaur. Now the plastic dinosaur isn't extinct. The plastic dinosaur is a representation of something that is extinct. So now we're talking about first and second level mm. of, uh, the, the sensation and reflection, but it's not really reflection. There's been a, a cruel of material. I still argue that it's an artificially intelligent. I go all over the place about this topic because I don't. I don't think it, it's necessarily anthropomorphically. The anthropomorphizing, I think, does us a disservice. This robotic arm, with its incumbent uh, built-in set of sets of information, was able to discern something based on that information. But but it was a programmatic, algorithmic kind of thing. And so I don't say, oh wow, now the robots become sentient. No, but there was experience. Yeah, I think that there's this
0: overemphasis in the artificial intelligence community that basically the artificial intelligence doesn't actually exist until it's general artificial intelligence. In other words, human-like thought processes and behaviors. Mm -hmm. But again, I think that's sort of missing the forest for the trees going back to our tree, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like we were just talking about, the, the tree doesn't have a brain. But looking at the scientific study of the forest, we see what could really only be described as as experience as the tree modifies its behavior to its environmental experiences, right?
1: Yeah, to I wouldn't argue that happen- the tree is aware that humans are ru- ruining things. I wouldn't argue that the tree is aware of how many people are in the forest or right. how many trees have been cut down. But the experience that is built into the system They've even demonstrated that if you drop a plant,
0: it can sense the gravity and change certain things. Which you know, again, we're not saying that a thought process is taking place. I think, but I don't think that you need thought to have experience, which is an interesting.
1: I I don't. I don't either. Now it's to make something of the experiences more than a a reaction cause and effect to reflect on the experience. That's where I think the intelligence and this the species, multiple species maybe whales do. I don't I don't see any reason to think not, given what we're what we're discovering. Or octopi, octopuses. Mm. Uh, but I think that there that there, there is if, that's not required in order for experience to happen. Now, when you're talking about experiences of, of somebody being handy at something because they've gained experience and they've learned how to do something and, and so they have reflected one of your engineers in your company, for instance, that's, that's different. It's a different level of experience.
0: Yeah. I think an important aspect of the discussion is how does experience interact with imagination right <laughs> and so you know like we're talking about the tree doesn't need thought to have an experience which by the way i think is the wildest part of our discussion so far. <laughs> i think that that's that that's that'll be our tagline i'll I'll post that on our on our page <laughs> afterwards and people go what and they're going to want to listen to the episode yeah. but i think that for humans and and not even humans but for conscious beings yes i think that imagination has an important interaction with how we experience
1: imagination is an extension of oneself toward possibilities and and this goes back to uh, the Kant and 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 the earlier books even John Dewey, really, in some ways, you've encountered Dewey in yeah, your studies. Yeah. Of, uh, but, but it's an it's an extrusion of self into the world of possibility. I wonder what would happen if I played a chord this way. I wonder what would happen if I used this piece of bark instead of a brush on my painting. And very interesting things sometimes happen mm. that produce effects that that uh, intrigue or please us. So, imagination is possibility, Uh, encountering possibilities and and, and encouraging possibilities and uh, reflecting on possibilities.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because, you know, a few years ago, they, they came out with a study about dragonflies and how they found dragonflies are able to imagine their body in space and their prey's body in space, and do calculations about what's going to be where in order to capture something. And they said, based on the brain volume and the brain structures of the dragonfly, it should not be able to do these calculations, right? So there, what we find is this underestimation or simplification of an organic thing and its cognitive capacities. Which I think is funny because it's it's a stark contrast to our views on AI today right mm. with the ai it's it's the other way around you have a machine that has a very a very simple um sort of basis and and learning but we we like to add on these things that give it an extra piece of character that does not seem
1: to be this, this. is the imagination working overtime <laughs> i don't no i take that back i don't like that phrase because it's too capitalistic This is privileging imagination over what might actually be taking place. We we must always have imagination. We we wouldn't have robotics, AI, art, music, or anything else without imagination. But imagination is not always the first principle in accurately figuring out what's going on. Mm
0: yeah I'm reading gossetti freshi's book hmm. right now on imagination is is life and it's man it's very interesting because there's the philosophical discussion on imagination has has been kind of um, underwhelming in some ways mm-hmm. um it, it really imagination has not been thought of as as playing the role that I think many would would sort of intuit that it does a lot of philosophers um, you know, try to separate imagination from creativity or imagination from other cognitive processes. And and part of what she's saying is that no imagination is, is involved in almost all of our, almost all of us. Yes. And even, you know, I think that that's when we go back to the question of, you know, subjective versus objective experience, that's a big part of it you know when we talk about the objective part being the um you know our sensory perception through our limited apparatus and the subjective part being the integration of that experience with the categorization and the prior knowledge that integration is an
1: imaginative process yes it is yes yes it is and 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 she's right and, and that's why I'm saying. I don't want I don't I, I just don't want to make imagination a transactional thing. Yeah, you know, working overtime. Well, well we're we're using too much imagination. It's not that. It's it's the it's the how, it, yes. how you imagine, how you're imagining
0: yourself into something. Right. Well we what we I think the example that she uses in the book, right, is that if somebody hands you a cup, you can look into that cup and see the bottom of the cup. You can imagine the bottom of the cup and you can probably be imagine it very close to what it looks like but you mm-hmm. do not know what it looks like and so imagination is good because it allows us to project that and but it's also can lead you astray because if you expect the bottom of that cup to be blank and you turn it over and there's a maker's mark or something else on there then your imagination was incorrect right and right. so looking letting your imagination think about the possibilities is both a magnificent, awesome thing that that we have, a capability that is incredible. But it's also something that needs to be tempered
1: with the objective experience that we have. Or adjust to it. Adjust to it. Yes. yes. Tempered with tempered with or adjust to we're saying the same things. If you insist, no, no matter what, I know that the bottom of that cup was going to be something, and then you find that it's something else and you won't acknowledge it. That's that's not imagination anymore. that's delusion right Yeah, exactly exactly.
0: <laughs> and I think that, that that right there plays into what we've been talking about when we when we think about AI or when we think about dragonflies mm-hmm. or when we think about the history of the universe. That's interesting <laughs> because Hawking and Herthog use a, a, the, also use the example of the cup talking about the big Bang. They say that, you know this idea that there's there's a hole at the bottom is wrong the cup comes down and then at the bottom it just swirls right so across you know cosmogony all the way up to how we imagine experience this metaphor of the cup transcends it and that's the power of imagination but also the power of the experience of a visceral cup
1: you know what you just took to me too the this this old children's song the folk song There's a hole in your bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in your bucket, dear Liza, a hole. And it's an argument back and forth. No, there's not. (laughs) Well, then fix it. I fixed it, but, you know, (laughs) physics comes to there's a hole in your bucket. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, man, that was fun. Until next
0: time, keep on